We are finishing up this morning our series on the tabernacle. This has been a blessed time for me in terms of learning and growing. Um, uh, I didn't, hadn't done much with the tabernacle before and um, did some learning on it. And now this morning we're going to finish this up with our um, discussion of the basin for washing. And then after that, we'll, after I get back, um, I'll talk with you in a little bit about some of the things we're going to talk about then. As we prepare to hear God's word together, let's pray for his blessing and his presence on our time. We ask, O oh God, that you touch us and move in us, that we might be encouraged and transformed by the power of your word. It cuts us, as it should, to the heart of things. It enlightens us, as it should, to the things which you want us to see. It encourages us, as it should, towards the things that give us hope. And it reminds us, as it should, of who you are and just how much you love us. Do your work in us this morning. May we be truly changed, encouraged, and transformed by your word, that it might move us to be a part of growing your kingdom in the world that we live in. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. From the book of Exodus, chapter 30, beginning at verse 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When it comes to washing my hands, hold on, we're getting this. Now we got it. I'm going to just put these over here, guys, and you can deal with that in a moment. So when I wash my hands, I don't know about you, but I am a Thirty seconds tops. How many of you are in that thirty seconds tops watching washing your hands? That's about you. How many of you think you wash your hands for longer than that? A minute? About a minute? How many of you are at like longer than like a minute and a half? 
Okay, nobody. I was doing some research this, this past week on washing hands. And if you didn't know, when you wash your hands for surgical procedures, watch me do this. I'm awesome. <laughs> when you wash your hands for surgical procedures, you are required to wash your hands in 12 steps. And those 12 steps should add up to about five minutes of washing. How am I doing now? Am I good? There we go. Awesome. Thank you, guys. It should be five minutes of washing, 12 steps, including even at the wash basin when you go into a surgical procedure, this thing that they use in order to clean under their nails. Now, there is some of you who are in the medical field who know what I'm talking about, and I hope that you observe that. Does, does our crime scene investigator observe that in order to not contaminate anything? Do you have to do that? Not quite that bad, all right? But some folks have to do that fairly involved process for their work because if you don't and you go into surgery, not having completed all the steps effectively, the possibility of you carrying some germ or some sort of contaminant into surgery, obviously in surgery that's internal and affects someone's well-being in some pretty big ways, the possibility of you carrying something like a staph infection or some other problem or issue that will cause infection is very, very real. Because if you carry that evidence of this germ of this infection with you, which is very possible. I mean, we know the world is a very germy world and you get a lot of it on your hands. If you do that, you can make someone very sick. This morning, as we talk about washing of hands, we talk about it in terms of the same thing, that there needs to be a, a cleansing, a removing of the dirt and the contamination. But we talk about it in a different way because there's a different consequence. In the medical field, that consequence is infection or other illness that can come. In our text, it's death. Death for the priest who does not cleanse himself when he is making sacrifice or when he goes into God's presence. And for us to think a little bit about why that is, especially with this wash basin, is appropriate today. Now, this wash basin is actually a relatively minor piece of furniture in the furniture of the tabernacle. It's actually something that um, uh, only very few people used. Only the priests used it. No one else did. And by the way, does anybody know it was made of bronze, but where did they get the bronze? Does anybody know that? They actually got it from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting, which is something I didn't know until this week. I'm not sure what all that means because I didn't dig too deep into that study, but it does mean that there were women working within the tabernacle as part of their service to God. Something to think about. But they, the priests had to wash their hands before they went in the tent of meeting, before they performed sacrifice, and they were the only ones who used it. So it's not that big of a deal to most of the others, but it is a big deal to the priests. And it signifies, it's a symbol of a really big deal. 
And the really big deal that it signifies is that if there is evidence of the sin of God's people upon a priest, when they're about their work in the tent of meeting or in sacrifice, there's a problem. And these guys would have been covered with that evidence fairly regularly. Remember their work. These are folks who sacrifice animals regularly. Take a knife after the animal was killed by the person offering it, butcher it, open it up, pour out the blood, throw the blood onto the horns of the altar, all these different things that they would do. You can imagine, our crime scene investigator can tell us, that's going to put blood all over the place. There's going to be evidence of blood all over the place, all over these people. So they had to make sure that that evidence was gone. It was probably not unusual for a priest to have evidence of blood all the way up to his, all the way up his arms, on his clothing, on his feet, because it would be drip onto the ground. These folks are in the work of blood. And God didn't want that blood in his presence. Because blood was a payment for sin. It was something that, blood was offered in order to forgive sin. Remember, they offered the, the lamb to atone for their sin. And that sin was atoned for by shedding of the blood and burning the flesh of the lamb on the altar. And so when a priest would go into the tent of meeting or into sacrifice with that blood upon him, they were bringing into God's presence evidence of sin. And remember how God feels about sin. He can't stand sin in his presence because he's a holy God. And a holy God can't stand anything around him that is unholy, and the evidence of sin would certainly be something that was unholy. So the priests were to wash themselves of all this evidence. Make sure you get every spot. Make sure you get under your fingernails. Make sure you check your clothing. Make sure you check your feet, wash between your toes, whatever. Remove it because I can't stand it in my presence, says the Lord. And the first part of verse 20 and the first part of verse 21, he says these things. He says this. Get there, I turned away from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. The evidence of sin equals death for the priests. And God had called them to remove it from themselves. Otherwise, well, there was that consequence of death. Now, for us, for our lives, we know. We talked about it a lot here. The consequence that we bear in our lives for sin is the same. And we know that we all carry that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've talked about that at length, that when you and I have entered into sin, which all of us have, when we've made decisions that are disobedient to God, that, that, that sin impacts us enough that the consequence for that sin is death. Because God is holy and can't stand unholiness in his presence. 
God has called us to be holy, and our sin ruins that. And left in our own sin, we can expect the same dire prediction as the priests do. We can expect to die. And, and again, we've talked about that at length. And of course, there are different ways for us to address that. I mean, the, and there are times that, that we, we feel that compulsion. I, I hate my sin. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And so we try harder to be holy. We try harder to do good. We try harder in how we read the Bible. We try harder in how we pray. We try harder in how we serve the kingdom. And we try all these different things. And, and we you know, that's in, in a sense moving us towards not doing sin, towards goodness. Or we can do it another way. And this is unfortunately the way that some people deal with it. We can say, well, I'm always going to sin. So, yeah, I know sin is bad, but I know I'm always also going to sin. And I also know that God, through his grace, always forgives my sin. So I'm not going to feel that bad about it. And sometimes that happens, especially when we deal with habitual sin. So there are some of us who have sins that have been so much a part of our lives, when we commit them, we don't even feel conviction or guilt anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Like if we lie, or if we are prideful, or if we are gossip, or we are greedy, or we are lustful, or we are an addict to something that controls us. We have been in that sin for so long that when we commit that sin, we don't even feel the guilt of it anymore. And we can acknowledge, yes, by his grace, Jesus Christ has forgiven us that sin. And that is true. That is true. There's no way around that. But we have to understand consequence of sin is death. And that should have impact. That should not just leave us in, well, God's grace covers it through Jesus Christ. Amen. Good. But we should also be moved in our hearts to say, wait, hold on. This evidence of sin is on me. And if I have sin's evidence upon me, then my relationship with God is it's messed up. Because <laughs> God can't stand unholiness in his presence, and I'm bearing that unholiness into his presence, and we're not going to get along a little bit, a lot bit, because of the evidence for my sin. It should challenge us because we are marked by sin, and we can't get rid of that evidence in and of ourselves, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you do good, no matter how many times you dip yourself into a thing of water, you still bear the evidence of sin. I was thinking about that this, this past month because um, uh, Kristen and I and the kids went to uh, a couple Angels games. Now, let me be honest. I didn't go to the Angels games because I'm a fan of the Angels. I am not a fan of the Angels. I'm a fan of Steve Vogt, who actually is the catcher for the Athletics. He's a former youth group kid of mine, and he plays for the Athletics. I went to see him play. They were playing the Angels, so I cheered for the A's. My son even wore a green jersey, but we were okay. Nobody beat us up. It's all good. 
We go to an Angels game. Actually, we went to two because I messed up. You know when you buy tickets and you go up to the ticket counter and you say, can I get into the game? And they look at you and say, wait, these are for Wednesday? And you had bought them thinking they were for Monday? That just means you go to two games because you buy tickets for that game too and then you come back on Wednesday. So it was a fun few days because I got to go to two baseball games with my family. I looked a little dumb in the process. That's okay. I'm watching the game. First game, we're in right field. Second game, we're in left field. So we saw everything. In right field, we had the privilege of sitting not that far from Josh Hamilton. If you don't know who Josh Hamilton is, he's either a right fielder or the DH for the Angels, he used to play for the Rangers. Very talented baseball player. Several years ago at New York Yankee Stadium, during the All-Star Game, he put on a show in one round of the Home Run Derby, hitting 28 home runs, a record that stands to this day and probably will stand for a very long time. Very talented, talented baseball player, but it was not always that way. In fact, when he came out of high school, he was a very highly recruited prospect, very highly recruited. But after he got out of high school and got into a little bit of the baseball life, things got really messy, really messy. He became an addict to heroin, to alcohol. He really got involved with a group of people who made life really messy. He was with a crowd that regularly took him to gentlemen's clubs, which is the absolute stupidest name for a thing ever. And tattoo parlors. And these people introduced him to parts of life that messed with him in some pretty big ways. And he became an addict. And he became an alcoholic. And when he went to the tattoo parlor, because of the way that he was feeling about life, he got tattoos all over himself that reflected his attitude, including demons, the devil. And his demons didn't have eyes. And that was to symbolize a demon without a soul, because that's how he felt. And if you want to go on YouTube and hear the story of Josh Hamilton's transformation, it's a great story. God used his grandma. Grandmas have power. Remember that, grandma. You got power to change the life of young men. God used a grandma to change this guy's life. And God be praised. He now walks with Jesus, confesses Christ as the only reason that he has life. He now, when he goes on the road, he goes with an accountability partner everywhere. That accountability partner is a, is a man who sleeps in the next hotel room, who goes with him out to dinner, who is with him all steps of the way because he doesn't want to relapse something that he's already done twice, most recently in 2012. And of course, if you see Josh Hamilton like we did at this baseball game, not sitting too far from him in the right field, in right field, you see that he's covered with these tattoos. In fact, these tattoos really are sleeves. They're all the way up past his shirt sleeve where it ends. And of course, he on some levels is ashamed by these tattoos because of what they represent. He has the devil tattooed on his body. And initially, of course, he thought, I want these removed. But the problem with sleeves of tattoos, they're really impossible to remove. You can remove portions of them. But in order to remove all of it would do so much damage to him that it wouldn't be worth it. His health would be at risk. So they remain to this day. 
and they probably were always. And now instead of being ashamed by them, he uses them as a testimony of a God's power for transformation to take someone who's a demon without a soul and to give that person life, give them transformation. But the problem remains. Josh Hamilton for a lifetime will bear the evidence of his sin. Now his is on his arms. Ours is on our hearts. Some of us carry that evidence on our bodies too. We certainly carry it in our minds, memories, brokenness, things in our hearts and our minds that we can't get out. We carry the evidence of that sin and the problem with that evidence of sin is that God can't stand it in his presence because he is a holy God and he can't stand unholiness in his presence. So what are we to do? Well, as we look back at not only this text from Exodus 30, but elsewhere instead, we understand what God has done to make us not only uh, able to be in his presence, but welcome to be in his presence. Now, we've talked a lot during this tabernacle series about rhythms. And this rhythm of ritualistic washing at the wash basin introduces a rhythm into tabernacle, into the life of the people of Israel that was an important one, especially for the priests. It was a rhythm of examination. Look at yourself. Look at your heart. Look at your mind. Check things out. Ask yourself questions, especially if you're a priest about to go into the tent of meeting or a priest who's supposed to offer sacrifices. You need to ask yourself these questions. Am I clean enough? Is all the sin gone from me? Am I worthy to be able to do these things in the presence of God? Because if you didn't get it all, if you didn't get clean enough, if you didn't get worthy enough, what was the consequence? You would die. So it was a pretty practical series of examinations that they went through. And if they didn't do it right, they could die. But the problem that we have with those three questions is that when we ask them about sin, the answers leave something to be desired. Am I clean enough? No. Is all the sin gone from me? No, it's not. Am I worthy? No, you're not. And there would never within themselves be any other answers to those questions. Because they could wash for five minutes, they could wash for five days, they could wash for five years, they could wash for five lifetimes they would never be able to wash the evidence of sin off of themselves. This was a necessary ritual for the priests, but God knew that a person washing themselves could never be fully cleansed from the evidence of their sin. You and I can't do this. We can never be good enough. We can never remove all these things from us. So instead, instead the water comes to them. Turn in your Bibles with me, John 13, beginning at verse 1. John 13, verse 1, tells us a familiar story right about the time 
Jesus was ready to be crucified. It says this, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Jesus Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had, an, had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you, that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now certainly, this text is about servanthood. But it is also about being washed by Jesus. These disciples can't cleanse themselves. The idea was you had, when you walked into these homes in Jesus' day, a basin right beside the door. You got down because your feet were dirty. You wore sandals and you walked on dirt roads. You cleaned your own feet, even though they had already done so, especially because this was the night of what? The Passover, the Seder. It was a time of cleanliness before God. Even though they had already washed their own feet, they were not clean enough. one who had to come to wash them. The water came to those who needed washing and cleansed them once and for all. Now we know this. And we understand this means that Jesus did for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. God be praised for that. It's a beautiful truth. There's more going on here we go too quickly, we miss it. He shows us clearly that by his grace, he cleanses us from sin. His washing of us removes any barrier from us knowing God's presence. Turn with me, Titus 3, 4 through 7, really quickly. It says this. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So we know this grace of Jesus Christ, not because we do anything to wash ourselves, because that's not possible. We simply receive the washing that comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's a great truth. And we need to live in that truth. But there's more to that truth. 
Because in John 13, Jesus says to the disciples, go and do likewise. Now I want you to think about that. We are to go and offer the grace of Jesus Christ into the lives of others because that's what he has done for them. He washed them even though they didn't deserve to be washed. Now go and do likewise. Now certainly our grace that we offer, our washing of others that we offer, doesn't have the same power as Christ. Christ is to come in and do that work through his grace. But he still calls us to go out and offer us, offer it to others. Not only that, but he also in Titus 3 calls us heirs. We have to live into that inheritance. And that inheritance comes, how? Through his grace. So what's that inheritance? Grace that we receive that we then live into in the lives of others. This is the new rhythm. It's not a rhythm of examination saying, can I ever be good enough? It's the rhythm of grace that says, who can I forgive? Who can I offer forgiveness to? And let me tell you, folks, this is the hardest work that you and I could ever do as followers of Jesus in this life. Because it's hard to forgive, isn't it? Especially when real bad things have happened. It's hard to forgive a parent who abused or said hurtful things or didn't do enough. It's hard to forgive someone who touched us in a way that we should not be touched and did things that should not be done to a child. It's hard to forgive a spouse who walked out on us or stepped out on us with another or hurt us or hurt our children. It's hard to forgive that person it's hard to forgive someone who backstabbed you, who lied to you. It's hard to forgive somebody who passed you over for a promotion because there was something else, a member of their family, who they wanted to give a position. It's hard to forgive the alcoholic, the drug user, the prideful, gossip, liar, fool, that looks at you sometimes every day in the mirror. That person's awfully hard to forgive sometimes. See, offering the washing of Jesus to others to his, through his grace is it's hard. But it's a command of Jesus. Because think about this. Did you deserve the forgiveness that you were offered through his grace. Were you, were you good enough, Sydney? Because I can tell you I wasn't. I can tell you sometimes I'm still not. Were you ever perfect enough? Were you ever holy enough? Did sin's evidence get removed enough from you for you to ever deserve the grace offered you through Jesus Christ? No. So if you've never been good enough, then should you expect that your father or your mother will be contrite enough about what happened when you were a child for you to forgive them? If you are to live as Christ has done for you in the lives of others, then 
church? Does your parent, does that person, does your husband, does your wife, does your child, do you yourself ever need to be right enough to deserve the grace that Christ has offered to you? And the answer is no. The time to do this work is not when someone deserves it. Because then it's not grace. Time to do the work is when you acknowledge that you have received it from Christ himself in your life. And it moves you to express that in the lives of others. I want to tell you, I'm going away for three weeks. And during that three weeks, three pastors will come and preach. And I've given them free reign. I don't know what you're going to hear. Bill Beerling's preaching, so you might get a Bronco sermon. Who knows what's going to go on that week. But when we come back, when I come back, we're going to spend about six weeks walking through what it means to forgive. We're going to start with the story of the prodigal son. We're going to do three weeks on that because there's three main characters. The first of all, the person is the prodigal son. The second is the father. And the third is the other son. And we're going to talk about what God teaches us about forgiveness and his grace through those three lives, those three characters in the story. And then we're going to talk about how it is that we learn to forgive. And here's why we're doing this. Because in my life and because in the lives of a number of people who have walked into my life over the past month or two months, this refrain has become a banging gong for me. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to live into the freedom of the grace given you through Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of your sins? And how do you live out that grace in the lives of those around you? And the reason this has become a banging gong is because there's so many of us who have much to learn here. We live in unforgiveness so often. We are locked down from the joy, the abundance of the life that we know through Jesus Christ because we're hanging on so tightly to the unforgiveness for ourselves or for somebody else and it doesn't allow us to live into the freedom. Christ through the washing of us by his grace has taken away all evidence of sin. He has given us the ability to be in Christ's presence now and always. And he equips us by his spirit to offer a sign of that grace to others through how we engage in relationship with him. This is a gift. It's a wonderful gift. But it's a gift we have to open and live into. Let's pray together that God equips us to that end. God, through the wash basin of the tabernacle, you remind us of your grace. That, Lord, the truth is we can't wash enough. We never have been able to, but you've given us Jesus who through his grace cleanses us from all our unrighteousness, redeems us from our sin, and makes us holy so that we can be in your presence. Lord, equip us now as we go from this place to live that out in the lives of others. 
to share with them what you have already given to us, to show them grace, to show them forgiveness, truly, Father, to show them you and how you love us, your people. We pray these things in Christ. Amen.